Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to help yoga teachers transform their teaching by mastering the fundamentals of anatomy. By learning anatomy in my easy step-by-step way, you'll be able to confidently share it in your cues, easily create sequences, and you'll eagerly answer student questions. And all along the way, you'll increase your impact and earning potential. On the podcast here, you will hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, go ahead and visit barebonesyoga.com, my website, for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all that are there, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. And if you'd like, send me a one-line email with the answer to this question. What's your biggest frustration right now as a yoga teacher? And I'm happy to do some brainstorming with you in a free coaching session. My email address is karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get to today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian. And this is episode 179. So I'm recording this intro on April 13th, 2022. And this is going to be the first of what I think are actually going to be recurring episodes uh, with a particular theme in mind. And the reason I'm adding these style of episodes to the podcast is because I'm so completely blown away and inspired by the teachers that I'm working with in my program. And I really firmly believe that when you hear the transformations that they are going through as teachers, you're going to be inspired as well. And so with their permission, I am sharing the uh, contents of the coaching calls that I have with some of the teachers in my program. And so today's episode is, I guess you could sort of call it a case study, but it's really more an opportunity for you as a yoga teacher to have a window into this private training opportunity that I offer teachers. And by private, I mean, it's a one-on-one experience, which is something very different from what many, and if I dare I say, most yoga teachers get. Most yoga teachers are participating in training that's done in a group environment. And while that can be really effective, there's quite frankly, nothing beats working with someone one-on-one because you completely get to customize it to what you want to know, what you want to learn, your style of learning, and then just practical things like when you're available and when you have time to, to do the session. So there's really a whole bunch of reasons why working with a mentor one-on-one makes sense. And in the context of my program, the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program, I knew if I just gave teachers access to my online course, that would be good, but not good enough. And so from the very beginning, I offered 
coaching calls as a chance for the teacher to ask questions that came up for them as they were going through the content and as a chance for me to really see an experience from them how it's going for them in the program. One of the things I never want my program to be is something that feels heavy or an obligation. I hear from way too many yoga teachers. I was completely overwhelmed when I was in my 200 hour training. There was way too much to absorb and on and on and on. And while some of that is sort of the boot camp atmosphere that's kind of baked in to a 200 hour teacher training, once you're done with that, and if you enroll in my program, I do not want to repeat that because honestly, the brain doesn't work well in that kind of environment when it comes to retaining information. So there are a lot of things that are built into the program that are really designed to leverage the capacity of your brain, neuroplasticity, uh, to learn. And one of the things I'll just be honest with you, one of the things I do is sort of leverage the brain's ability to stay on track if it's being rewarded along the way, not for everything, but for some things. And so one of the things I offer teachers is a learning rewards program where they actually earn back money as they complete these coaching calls. So it cuts down, it defrays on the cost of their investment in the program, and it gives them a reward, a monetary re reward for showing up to the calls. However, the biggest reward that they get is that they begin to believe and see evidence of their transformation as a teacher. And I see that when I work with them in these calls. And I always sort of bring it to the surface and reflect back to them and ask them inquiry and discovery questions around things like, so it sounds like you're really understanding this anatomy concept. How does that have you feeling? How does that make you feel? What does that allow you to do now that you couldn't do before? And I'm always blown away by the responses I get when I ask questions like that. You know, we can look at learning anatomy as a very factual academic experience, or we can look at it as an, as an opportunity for us as teachers to transform our teaching. And if you hear that phrase and you think that sounds like a bunch of baloney or it sounds like a bunch of woo-woo, at the nitty gritty level, I always offer the nitty gritty level changes that happen when you transform your teaching, because I think there are sort of two camps of teachers. Those who hear transform your teaching. Here's an opportunity, an opportunity to do that. And they jump on and they're like, yes, tell me where I sign. And then other teachers are like, what the hell does transform your teaching mean? So what that means is that on the strategic level, on the tactical level, you learn how to cue confidently based upon what you know about the body, i.e. anatomy. You build sequences easily and in much less time, and sometimes even just on the fly, which most of the teachers in my program weren't doing before they enrolled. And you answer student questions in a collaborative way and confidently and enthusiastically, rather than feeling like you're on the hot seat, oh my God, what do I do? 
to respond to this person's question. So those are three of the many areas, but the main areas where teachers transform. So in this call with her blessing, Mindy has agreed to allow me to share this call with you. And the reason I picked Mindy's coaching call as a kickoff to this new segment of podcast episodes I'm going to be sharing here on conversations for yoga teachers is because I felt so much positive energy from her and I loved her attitude and I loved that she was feeling like everything was clicking together. That concept of having things finally click and being able to pull the pieces together in a cohesive way so that you can teach confidently is not only what Mindy experienced, and you'll hear her say that in this call, it's also what other teachers experience and what I want for all teachers who are in my program and what the evidence has shown is more than possible. So this is a little window into my world and into the world of experiences that teachers in my program have. Keep in mind, the Blueprint Learning Program has four parts. It has the self-study part, which the teacher does independently, which is reviewing the course, which isn't just a course, it's a multi-step all you do is follow the steps to learn the information. That's it. You don't have to go on the internet beyond the course. You don't have to look at a manual. You literally just go through the modules in the course. The coaching calls is an additional piece. The uh, anatomy manual gives them a glossary of the postures with the breakdown of anatomy for each one. And then the practice portal is an online portal where they can see dozens of recorded sequences and get ideas to create their own sequences, as well as practice yoga and practice meditation and journal exercises. So it's a four-pronged approach to helping you transform as a teacher by mastering anatomy and getting the skills that come from that. I'm sure you would agree that in order to teach yoga, you're teaching movement. And in order to teach movement, you've got to understand how the body moves. And that knowledge lies in anatomy. Learning anatomy in a step-by-step -step way is so much easier and dare I say, even fun. And it's exactly how my program is built. So with that, I'm going to drop you over to listening to the coaching call with Mindy. Now, this is, of course, a coaching call, so there's a video. You're only listening, of course, to the audio. If you would like the video that goes along with this recording, I want you to email me and ask for it, karen at barebonesyoga.com, or you can DM me on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook at Barebones Yoga and just say you want the video that goes along with this episode with the coaching call uh, that you're listening to. And I'm happy to send you the video. So with that, let's hop over to this call and let's take a look at, take a look at um, uh, the transformations that are happening for Mindy. And again, many, many thanks to Mindy for allowing me to share this with you. Here we go. So how's your experience been kind of getting your fingers into the course part of the program? It's good. It's been really good. I've been trying to keep on a schedule and I'm almost on schedule. I'm a little bit behind 
And um, so I'm trying not to get so caught up in the schedule that I don't yeah. spend time because I want to redo a couple of these videos. And I was just yeah. thinking to myself, I just need to do it and not be so focused on getting on schedule and staying on schedule. Yeah. Tell me, um, cause we can talk about some of the content and some of the videos you're going to review again to kind of make it more a conversation. Which ones are you thinking of looking at again? So I just did the, the upper body and lower body muscle videos where you're using the skeleton to show yeah. the muscles. Yeah, yeah. And I want to redo those. Cause I think those are super helpful, super useful. Yeah. So I just want to kind of lock those in a little bit more by watching those again. Okay. Do you want to talk through it with the skeleton here or do you prefer to just watch the video? Either is fine. I'm just thinking if you want, we can go over some of that. I think I can do it watching the video, but I did have a couple specific, yeah. like I had one main specific question yeah. that I know you can help me with. So when we're saying hip flexors, yep. Because that comes up a lot. And actually, it's funny because I was at a class recently where the teacher was using the wrong term. She kept saying hip flexors when she was talking about the, the hip. Okay. And I was thinking that's not the hip flexor. But right. the hip flexors is actually a group because I was trying to hone in on what ex what muscle exactly is the hip flexor, partly because I was in that class and I was thinking she's she's using the wrong term for the wrong thing. Right. But what muscle it's like a several muscles that flex the hips. So is yeah, when we say hip flexors, are we talking about all of that? Yeah. So it's kind of like if you say the core or the abdominal muscle group. It's a group of muscles. It's a little different when we say something like the quads because the quads as part of the word quad implies that it's four parts to the muscle. When we say the hip flexor group or hip flexors, it implies that it's a high level term referring to a group of muscles separate from when we just say the quadriceps or the hamstrings. Part and parcel with quads and hamstrings are the fact that they have, the hamstrings have three parts to them, the quads have three, have four parts to them. But if we say the hip flexors, we're talking about separate muscles that all do the same thing. So the primary hip flexor muscle that most yoga teachers talk about is the psoas, P-S-O-A-S. And the psoas runs from the lumbar spine and it runs in, let me get my strap here. The psoas runs from the lumbar spine in front of the pelvis to the um, femur, a specific part of the femur, the trochanter. And so because it runs in front, and it happens to be a really thick, strong muscle. So because it runs in the front, most I would say all of the muscles in the front on the anterior aspect of the body are flexors. Muscles on the posterior aspect of the body are extensors or external rotators. Muscles in the front on the anterior aspect are flexors or internal rotators. So mm -hmm. because, even though the psoas starts on your back, your low back, because it runs in front of the pelvis, it can't act to take my leg back can't act to hit extend my hip it's in front so it's going to act to 
since this is the origin, this is the insertion, it's going to act to pull the insertion closer to the origin. So as soon as I lift my leg, I'm flexing my hip. This is hip flexion, hip extension, abduction, adduction, external, internal rotation. So if so, that's the primary, the primary hip flexor. The other hip flexor, and it's hard to know when teachers refer to hip flexors if they even know what they are. Right. <laughs> but, you know, like you know, whatever. Um, but the psoas is one. The other primary hip flexor, which another term is a synergist. When one muscle does the same thing as another that's nearby to it, they work collaboratively and that means they're synergists. They work synergistically. They do the same thing to help that action. So a synergist to the psoas is the rectus femoris. The rectus femoris is part of the quads. It's the only part of the quadriceps that while it does extend the nave like the rest of them, it crosses the hip. So because it crosses the hip joint, because it starts up here on the pelvis, it's got to do something to the hip. Any muscle that crosses the movable part is going to do something to it. The other parts of the quad don't cross the hip joint. They start on the femur and they end on the knee. So the only joint they can impact is the knee. So they're all extensors of the knee. But the rectus femoris, I believe the origin is the posterior iliac spine. So up here, this ridge of the pelvis, this iliac spine, you have the anterior iliac spine, the posterior iliac spine. It comes from here all the way down to the knee. So it's in the same region as the psoas. So it's also gonna help you flex your hip and collaborate with the psoas to do that. So those are two primary hip flexors. Um, and also remember in this demo I'm doing for you, I'm moving my leg. If I go, if I don't move my leg and I keep my feet down and I go like this, this is hip flexion too. Right using the same muscles to do the same thing. I'm just moving a different part of my body. Okay. Okay. So, there are other hip flexors like the sartorius is a hip flexor, but when people say the hip flexor group, primarily they're talking psoas and rectus femoris. Is re so what's the quadricep femoris? Is that just- it's this, So I guess I don't, I guess maybe I even termed it that at one point in the Oh, name. I see. It's the one of, it's like the bulk, the, all of them together. I got it. So the quadriceps femoris is the whole muscle group or sure. most commonly known as the quads. If you chunk it out into the four parts, you get the rectus femoris, the, um, the recti, uh, the medialis, the intermedius and the medialis and the lateralis. So those are the four together parts of the quadriceps femoris. The rectus femoris is the only one that starts on the hip. Got it. It does two things. So when something crosses two joints, it's a poly 
articular muscle, poly meaning more than one, articular meaning articulating surfaces, the surfaces that connect at the joint. I've got the head of the humerus and the glenoid fossa of the scapula, that's the joint. The surfaces are the articulating surfaces. If I look at the spine, I've got all the vertebrae stacked. So every vertebrae has a surface touching another. Those are the articulating surfaces. Uh, anyway, that's fine-tuned detail. So yeah, so, um, so let's just take it a little bit further. We might as well since we're here. So now we're talking hip flexors. Now we know uh, it's moving the... Um, Hip flexion is moving in the sagittal plane, right? So flexion occurs in the sagittal plane and the opposite of flexion is extension. So this is hip flexion, this is hip extension. The sagittal plane divides the body into a left and a right. So if I come into something like warrior one, I have this hip in flexion, this hip in extension. If I switch, I have this hip inflection, this hip and extension. If I do something like um, downward dog, I have both hips and extension. But if I bring my knee forward, now this hip is in flexion. If I come on the ground and I come into both, both hips are in flexion. If I do something like chair, both hips are in flexion. If I do something like tree, one hip is in flexion and external rotation, but flexion is part of it. If I want to teach in a way where I emphasize, oh, you're strengthening your hip flexors here. Maybe I want to speak to that. I could do something like I could have people here. I could say, hey, you know what, guys, we're going to strengthen our hip flexors. Take your back leg, pull it in and then step back. And this dynamic movement is bringing that back hip into flexion in a couple of reps. And every time we step that leg forward, blah, 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 blah. Or I could do something like, I could have them invoke, and I could do something like this. Hey, this is a good way to strengthen your hip flexors or whatever. So that's a way to sort of weave into your teaching a little bit of that information so it sort of gives the person a little bit more of what's going on. Okay. Now you said in downward dog, you're in hip extension. Is that right? Oh, I'm sorry. That I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrong. I was wrong there. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is hip flexion. You're correct. This okay. is hip extension. Okay, got it. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, you're right. I was understanding. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, so, so the runner's lunge and things like that, you're stretching that hip flexor because you're extending through the hip. Yeah. Think about, think about, you know, if we say, if we say sagittal plane and we say movement forward in the sagittal plane is flexion movement backward, right? So this is shoulder flexion. This is shoulder extension. And remember, and I'm sure you know this from your nursing days, right? So the, the motion is the range of motion. So someone comes in with bursitis of the shoulder, they can only full, they can only move their arm to here. They have limited range of motion at the shoulder joint in flexion. 
Maybe they can do extension five. So, um, oh God, what was your, what did you say? What was your, oh, so hip flex, so lunges. Runner's lunge. Yeah, so think about, you know, as you have any kind of lunge, right? Anything, whether I'm down here, whether I'm here, whether I'm here, um, any, any lunge, this, this, this is moving the hip backwards. And the little tricky thing is the limb is what's moving. The movement's occurring at the joint. So as I take my hip into flexion, the limb that's attached to the joint is what you see moving much more than you see this moving. Right. So if I take my leg back, the, hip, the proper terminology is the hips in extension, not the legs in extension. Because the leg is just the limb. The movement's occurring at the joint. If I take my arm like this, I'm moving my shoulder into flexion. If I take my arm like this, I'm moving my shoulder into extension. Same with this. Even mm -hmm. though I'm in a static position here, my shoulder is moving back. My arm is going with it. Um, so yeah, any kind of lunge gives you a stretch of the hip flexor group, right? Because I'm not moving into the action that those muscles do. I'm doing the opposite action. So now I'm not, not using the psoas to do the thing, to create the flexion, which is the concentric contraction, I'm doing the opposite. So if I'm doing the opposite, the opposite muscle is what's the doer. So the opposite muscle of the hip flexor is the gluteus maximus. Got it. Okay, so that's- I didn't even, mm -hmm. even know the name of it. I can sort of visually know, well, the opposite muscle of this is probably going to be back here somewhere. Right. So, and that's a, a little bit of a place where teachers tend to get a little lazy in their, in their yoga speak because so many times people just say the glutes, but the glutes is the group. The gluteus maximus, the gluteus medius, and the gluteus minimus are what is in that group. And they're in different places. Glute max is here, and it's a hip extender. Glute medius and minimus are here, and they're a hip abductor. They move the hip out to the side. And when I say hip to the side, it's really the leg that's going. Mm -hmm. So okay. if I want to strengthen my glutes, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff where I'm taking people into hip extension. But at the same time, I'm strengthening my glutes, I'm lengthening my hip flexor. Mm -hmm. If I want to strengthen my hip flexor, I'm stretching my glute max. So, right. you know, and those where we said, um, where we said psoas and rectus femoris are synergists, they synergistically work to do the same thing. The psoas and the glute max 
are antagonists. They oppose one another. The easiest example of that is your biceps and your triceps. Your biceps flexes, your triceps extends the elbow. So lots of different examples of that. Your pecs internally rotate your shoulder. Your, um, your teres minor and infraspinatus, part of the rotator cuff that connects your scapula to your humerus, they externally rotate. Mm -hmm. So muscles can work as synergists and collaborate to do the same thing, or, or you can look at muscles as antagonists where they do opposing things. Got it, yeah. Okay. You could even build a sequence using that theme. Like I could build a sequence on shoulder movement where I had people doing some external rotation and then maybe doing some internal rotation. You know, a shape like archer arms is a great example because here in one shape, I have an externally rotated shoulder and I have an internally rotated shoulder. Mm -hmm. and then the opposite, I get the opposite. Now this one's internally rotated and this one's externally rotated. So right. that's a way to take these concepts and weave them into themes for your teaching. Because that's ultimately where this is all headed. It's not just that we want to know it just so we can know it. It's like, well, how can I leverage the knowing into my teaching? Right. Okay. So what else? Did you have other things that came up as questions? I don't know that I had any major questions. I had a big aha moment sort of with them. And I'm sure this is something that, that should have clicked before. It's probably been taught to me before, but somehow it really clicked with me how, how so many of these poses are like the, the basis of, um, of mountain of Tadasana is there like stacking the shoulders over the hips. Yeah. In the poses, like that continues to be there. Like yeah. if you're in a warrior pose, a warrior two pose or something, your hips are, your shoulders are still directly over your hips. Like it totally mm -hmm. was this, oh my gosh, yeah. Like that yeah. in these, even on the poses on the floor or on, yeah that you're still, if you flipped yourself up, you would be in Tadasana, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Just yeah. With me. yeah. And sometimes it takes a couple go rounds before the light bulb goes off. So it's, it's no, it's no concern or anything. And let's just further take what your realization is and look at it through the lens of anatomy specifically, because that's, you know, kind of the lens we have on right now. And so in those first couple of modules where I take that deeper dive into anatomical position, what are the qualities of anatomical position? Why do we even care? The reason why we care, if we now call it anatomical position instead of or mountain pose, the reason why we care is exactly what you said, because there are so many qualities of this AP, like you said, that we see in poses that we can use as a guide for our cueing, where we don't have to get into a lot of the minutia. We can stay at the level of the shape 
and the qualities of this shape that are helpful for people to access when they're in different shapes. But as you say, some of these qualities are transient. They live in these other shapes as well. So let's just go through some more examples of this to really have it hit home. And one of the things I want you to keep in mind, and you sort of alluded to this, is that my position to gravity is a factor in my ability to maintain some of the goodness of anatomical position, some of the good qualities of that, that I would want to retain. Like certainly if I'm doing wheel, there's not a ton of similarity in that shape and anatomical position, except maybe feet at hip width. However, there are a lot of other poses where I can find a lot of other connecting points between AP's qualities and the pose qualities. So like you said, shoulders over hips, right? So I have that here. Mm -hmm. I have that here. Uh, no, I don't. I don't have that there. I have it here, shoulders over hips. I have, um, I guess to a certain extent, I have it here in Warrior One. Warrior two, mountain pose. And those are two standing postures. But what if I take myself out of standing and I now add gravity as a force I need to overcome? So if I come into something like plank, now because I have to fight gravity, I might be more inclined to drop my head. But as a teacher, if you're thinking of the qualities of AP that you can apply to this, you might be inspired to ask your students to just lift their chin a little bit. Now you may mm -hmm. not know the muscles of the neck that are sort of not doing their job there, which is why the head's dropping. It really doesn't matter though, because you know this, and you know this is the body working in sync. Same with if I ask somebody, if I look at somebody in AP, what's the quality of the pelvis? Like what's, what's the pelvic position? How would you describe it in anatomical position? It's even, like the yeah. hip points are even. Yeah, and it's even, it's level, it's stable, level, yeah. it's moving. And, and that quality that you see is aided by the fact that my feet are on the ground. But as soon as, let's say I'm watching somebody run, let's say I go out for a run and I'm running behind somebody, a really common thing you see in runners is this. Mm -hmm. Right? Or even walking. Sometimes when you see older people walk, it can be because of hip issues. But in someone who's a young otherwise healthy person, you'll see a lot of play in their hips. The other thing you might see, and there can be reasons for that, and we can focus, if we just look through the lens of muscular anatomy, it could be some weakness in the muscles that stabilize the hip when I lift one foot. And those are going to be muscles that include those glutes on the side, because they're on the side. They're primed to keep the pelvis level along with other muscles. 
In yoga teaching though, versus running, as soon as we have people stand on one leg, now that poses a challenge like the gravity thing to keep the pelvis level. So if I'm teaching mm -hmm. a tree and I see they're sort of slumped, I might not know why, but I know this and the quality of this as being a template. So I can use whatever action cues to get them closer to AP. So I might say, you know, root into your standing leg more. Do you notice one hip is lower than the other? Can you correct for that? Can you pull your belly button in? You know, even maybe just bringing it to their focus gives the person sort of an intuitive sense of how to correct it. Sometimes I might know something helpful to say, and I can say it. But the point is, and the reason I go through all that in the beginning is because I want you to realize there's so much from this that you can share to help your students without having to go further into the other stuff in the other modules that gets a little bit more complicated to learn. It's still doable. It's just that you have so much to work with here. Um, other things are things like in AP, the feet are at hip width, the feet are not together. In traditional yoga, feet are together. Harder to balance because now I've made a narrower base. So if I'm mm -hmm. working with beginners, if I'm working with people that are older, if I'm working with people who seem to be unsteady, I can say, oh, I know an anatomical position. Hip width means the joints are aligned. I'm just going to teach a lot of poses and have them widen their stance. And that's a way to create more stability. Right. And that's, it's interesting because there's some of those things I would do in certain positions, but I didn't know to connect it. And now knowing to connect it, I found ways to do it in other poses. And I teach beginning yoga. So I do a lot of that, like widening the stance and things. And now it makes so much more sense why yes. those things work and why, you know, people are always trying to get, even the beginners, they're trying to get their feet in, like in warrior one, they're trying to keep their feet really close together. And I'm always saying, widen your stance, come out to the edges of the mat because they're losing their hip placements yeah. when they start, they're wobbling and they're trying to stay balanced. And so it makes so much more sense to look at it from that anatomical position and realize just widening that stance gives you that stability because. Yeah, yeah. And you see how connecting from this point forward, what you're saying with what you know has the potential to change how you come across when you teach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I feel like I it just makes more sense. And if it makes more sense to me, I'm able to put it across much better. Yeah. Like, because exactly. it's, it's like I had the pieces, but to now make this full yeah. circle connection is so much better. Yeah. And that's where when people say to me, I want to be able to teach confidently. I know it's sort of like I was listening to a podcast today with a mentalist and he said, you know, he does all those things. He goes on TV shows and does all those mentalists like magic tricks. And he said, you know, all it is, is I know where I want the person to go. So I think of where I want them to end up in the trick. And I just reverse engineer the steps to get them there. 
they don't know what the steps are, but I know where I want them to get. And so what you just described is exactly what I know in the experience of shifting your teaching from just saying a bunch of stuff to really feeling confident. I know that to get there, it's exactly what you said. You link everything together about a concept so that when you're speaking to the concept in your teaching, and even if you're not, you are coming from a place of knowing what you're talking about. And that mm -hmm. for anything, anything you do where you can really have the repository of knowledge, you're going to do that thing more confidently. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. Because even last week I had gone through, I had had that aha moment. And when I taught last week, I was, I was trying some different things or bringing that up, like in tree pose, bringing up leveling the, the pelvis, which I had never really brought that up when I taught tree pose before. So it was, it was interesting to have that. And I had one lady at the end say to me, that was a really good class. And I felt like it was because I was using some different cues and yeah. going a different direction. Yeah. Another place it comes up, I mean, head position is a big one because everybody's posture is always looking down. So for the most part, the head drop forward is something that we see a lot in teaching. In addition, though, even head drop to the side can happen. And that can be even in someone who's got healthy muscles in their neck and upper body, but it's just that they're not really aware. So any position where you're taking somebody laterally, they might have a tendency to drop their head. And so that's another place where you can cue them to bring the head more in line with the upper body, um, which comes from anatomical position. The pelvis thing that we talked about that you just brought up again, keep in mind too, you've got the side muscles of the hip, the glute medius and minimus, but anything that touches the hip is the pelvis is fair game when it comes to who can help somebody level off their pelvis. So when you think about, here's the top ridge of the pelvis, there's a muscle right here called the quadratus lumborum, the QL. So the QL is primarily known for its ability to help us side bend. So taking the pelvis and tipping it sideways, taking the spine and moving it laterally side to side, because though it touches the pelvis, it's another candidate for a muscle that can help stabilize the pelvis. The other thing is not on the back, on the front, you've got a muscle that runs from your sternum to your pubic bone, and that's the rectus abdominis. So that's like the crunching muscle when you do abdominal crunches. Because it touches the pelvis in the front, it's another good candidate for changing, changing pelvic positioning. So if I have somebody in, let's say, uh, let's say I have somebody in a, a lunge, like a warrior one, and their pelvis is tipped forward too much. And I wanna get their pelvis more level, like an anatomical position. That means this part, the pubic bone is, tipping to the front anteriorly. And I want to sort of, I don't want to necessarily have them go all the way back, but I want to get their pelvis more level. So I could talk to them and ask them to 
not lift their pubic bone, but I can ask them to contract the muscle that attaches to their pubic bone. So now it's kind of like the, the marionette strings on the puppet. I'm talking to them and I'm saying, pull your belly button in or contract the, the muscle along the center line of your body. And as they do that, they can get their pelvis more level because they're leveraging this muscle's attachment on this part of the pelvis to mm -hmm. lift. Now I could not speak to the front. I could speak to the back. So in this scenario, because the tailbone is sticking out too much, it's hyper extended, too much extended. I could say, instead of sticking your tailbone out, can you guys tuck your tailbone a little bit? So I could talk That is something that I, that's something, I see that a lot, like people sticking the tailbone out in like, um, say triangle or something like that, where people tend to get a little funky with the hip there or create like sort of a, or goddess is another one where I see people a lot of times with that tailbone hyperextended. Like and so, yeah. Yeah. So and think about um, when someone is doing something that's off from what you would envision, it's oftentimes because a joint or a muscle is preventing them from doing it the way you envision. There's something blocking it. And in many cases, the person intellectually hears what you're saying and they know the pose. So they're trying to sort of fall in line, but their body is a block. And when I say the body, think about the infrastructure of the body and what they have available to leverage to get into the shape. They've got bones, they've got joints, they've got muscles acting on bones, they've got fascia. So when I look at all those components and I watch people moving on the mat and I see someone who's out of alignment, my first thought is either they're not hearing me and they're not understanding what I want them to do. So that's on me. So I might reframe the cue and give them another shot or they're hearing me, they get it, but something in the infrastructure is like, no, not going there. The thing though about the body is that even when something is a block, the body has ways kind of around it. Like think of somebody who has a crick in their neck or a trigger point in their neck. Over time, if they don't get that treated, they'll sort of just create a compensation where they just don't do the movement that gives them the problem. And so as a result, they have the trigger point and then they have this other stuff that the other muscles around it are doing to sort of make up for it. It's like, well, geez, if you're not gonna take care of that, we're just gonna protect that area and just lift the shoulder or do whatever the other thing is. So for the example that you shared, if I, let's take a, let's take, let's take a, a simpler one. 
if I take somebody and I say, hey, let's do warrior one, and I have in my brain shoulders over hips and hips pretty much level, right? Here I am in anatomical position. My hips are level. If I take myself into warrior one, pretty much hips level two, right? Are we in agreement there? Okay. Yeah. However, what I see is something more like this. Mm -hmm. Now, my hips are not level. My, and when I say hips, right? So the hip is the hip joint. The pelvis is the connection of the two pelvic bones that create the bowl, the container of the pelvis. So when I see somebody in warrior one, I want the pelvis level, just like in AP. If I see them tipped forward, this is an anterior tip of the pelvis, not a posterior. I'm tipping it to the front, meaning the ASIS, the anterior superior iliac spine, those two hip points are pointing mm -hmm. forward. They're not going backward. So I take uh, warrior one, pelvis level, just like AP, but now I have a person who's here. So if I have a person who's here, they're anterior tipped, but they know in their head they want to get themselves upright. So they're sort of creating this big sway back to try to get themselves upright because they don't want to be here. They know this isn't right, but the body isn't letting them get here. Now, when we say the body, we can hone in more and say what part of the body but to understand what part of the body, we have to understand the stuff you're going through right now in the course, the, the qualities of anatomical position, the planes of movement, joints are where the bones connect and so on. So if I look at this, I say, hmm, can't get pelvis level, this hips an extension. If this hips an extension, the hip flexor of this leg is lengthening. The gluteus maximus of this hip is working to take the hip into extension. If they can't get themselves upright, there could be a block in <clears throat> the movement allowed at this joint. Right. And the primary candidate for movement in this joint is I want to be able to take my hip into extension. And just like we said at the beginning, if I'm taking my hip into extension, I'm using glute max, I'm stretching rec fem and psoas. So maybe these guys are too short. And because they're too short, it's pitching me forward. And so my modification might be, don't put this hip into such a demand for extension shorten the stance, <clears throat> give the psoas less to do in the stretching plane, and now I can get myself more upright. So do you see how we did that? Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's interesting. So what about in goddess? What would be the thing then if somebody's got that sway back in goddess, what would be the culprit for something like that? Yeah. Just trying to talk so, through that. Keep in mind, when we're looking as teachers at what's happening, 
number one, we only have a couple of seconds, right? It's not right. any working in the group. So we're sort of guessing, but the guesses we're making when they're coming from what we know are informed guesses. It's not just like whatever. And the point of using that knowledge when you're teaching a group is more so that you can change up your cues to address what you're seeing. So if you see someone in that warrior one with the hyperextension of the tailbone and the pelvis anteriorly tipped, you can just say to, the, say to everybody, hey, if you're finding you're leaning forward, bring your back foot in a little bit, see if you can upright yourself. So you're just mm -hmm. out there. You're not like, hey, Jane, you're leaning forward a lot. Can you blah, blah, blah. Just call it out because there's probably other people who can help. Unless somebody comes up to you after class and says, why the hell can I blah, 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 blah. You're not going to really be able to get into it. So that's just a little disclaimer. However, for the goddess thing, if I take somebody and I want them to flex their hips, because see, the other thing about goddess when you look at things through the lens of the personal training world, the primary way any personal trainer ever assesses somebody's movement is they do a squat assessment. They do it in a static way and they do it in a moving way. And the reason they use a squat is because a squat, which is basically a goddess pose, has a quality of it where we have shoulders inflection, hips inflection, knees inflection, and ankle inflection. So we really have like triple quadruple flexion here. And once we put that sort of demand on the body, if there are muscles of extension that aren't strong enough or muscles of flexion that are too tight, we're gonna see, think of the body, not like parts, but think of it like a chain. So if I take the chain and now I ask it to flex, in one, two, three ways, and there's any problem along the links in the chain, muscles too tight, muscles too weak, um, there's gonna be some sort of compensation. And that's generally what we call a muscle compensation. Somebody is compensating because somebody else can't do their job well enough. A really mm -hmm. good example of that might be, um, uh, if I sit a lot, and I take my glutes because as I'm sitting, my hip is in flexion. So because my hips in flexion when I sit and the function of my glute max is extension, I'm not doing a lot of extension. I'm doing a lot of flexion. So I'm always sort of stretching my glutes. So now when I come to yoga class and I wanna do a lot of movements where I take my hip into extension, my glute max is weak because I've been stretching it a lot. So somebody else has to make up for the weakness in my glute max. Well, it sure as hell isn't going to be something up here. If that doesn't have any contribution, it's going to be something nearby. So what's the nearest thing to glute max? The hamstrings. So the hamstrings tend to take on more of the load in hip extension if the glute max is weak because of some reason, and for so many people, it's just the constant passive sitting. So that's that. So now we go mm -hmm. back to goddess and we say, okay, I have somebody in goddess. I want them to flex their hips, but I don't want them to stick their tailbone out. Now, 
as they stick their tailbone out, if I look up the chain, what do I see in the low back? Like what, what quality of shape do you see? Yeah, it's like a sway back, what we call um, a lordotic spine, not mm -hmm. a lordosis. So if I see, now I have a lordotic, uh, I have a lordotic spine anyway, just in anatomical position, I can feel a lordosis, but it's not an exaggerated one. When I see an exaggerated anything, if I'm not asking the person to exaggerate it, like in wheel, <laughs> if I just want them to be doing a lunge, but instead I see that, what that says to me is something that does that is doing too much of it. Something, the something being a muscle or a group of muscles, whoever does that thing is just doing too much. And when you say doing too much, I mean, not in a good way. Not like I'm trying to bulk up, I'm trying to build my biceps, I wanna to go to hypertrophy. It's like, settle down, settle down. Too much muchness there. So if I look at a sway back, it's not spinal flexion, it's spinal extension. Now, as I said, if I want somebody to come into wheel, if I want somebody to do dancers, I want spinal extension. But if I have somebody in goddess, I don't want spinal extension there. But if I'm a person that has overactive spinal extensors in my lower back, that might be what I do. Mm -hmm. Now I'm in a position where, and if I have no awareness on the anterior, the muscles on the anterior. I'm just kind of letting my body go to town. I don't know what, I don't know. I'm like not aware. It's just a postural thing that happens. So many times, you know, when people talk about, I have low back pain, I have chronic low back pain, my low back always hurts. Many times that's an issue with this part of the spinal erector muscles, the erector spinae. You know, you can look at the erector spinae as the unit that runs up and down the spine as a group. There's the three parts to it, or you can chunk it out. The lumbar erector spinae, the thoracic, the cervical. And this is a very common place where people have overactive muscles. And sometimes it's because the core is weak. Right. That's what I was coming to when you were talking. I was suddenly thinking it's the opposite, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, because think about it. It's the same thing with the head. If I'm constantly looking down at my phone, the muscles that lift my head are constantly straining to get the head uprighted. But me as the owner of the body is constantly looking down. So those muscles are firing, but not, as, not strong enough to get the head up. Here, it could be that there's just some weakness here. And so mm -hmm. this is sort of constantly overdoing and it creates muscles that are just sort of always firing and too much tension and not a lot of just healthy mobility. And so I go, you'll see it in something like chair. You know, you might see, mm -hmm. you know, someone hyperextend their tail. So, so cueing to engage that belly button. 
might do the thing, like help them to become aware of it. Absolutely. But see, now you're starting to look at the body in a systematic way. And once you start doing that, you're lethal, you're unstoppable, because now you're coupling what I know about anatomy as I learn it in the parts. And I'm also able to translate what I know about the body in a piecemeal fashion, if I break it apart and look at it in a systematic way. And that is an unstoppable ability combination because when we're teaching, we're not looking at an anatomy manual, we're looking at people moving. So exactly what you said, you see the person, you see their tailbone sticking out, you notice, all right, so maybe there's an overactivity in the lumbar, but I wanna go around and cue something around the front of the body to activate muscles in the front, to allow the pelvis to right itself. It's like this whole puzzle is coming together. There is no way you'd ever get there confidently if you were just like, for every time I see people with hyperextended tail, cue them to the belt. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. And the thing that I often say when I see it is tuck your tailbone, but it's like they can't tuck their tailbone. I couldn't figure out how else to cue it to try to try to yeah. get that tilted to get to tilt the pelvis back so that really helps to break it down like that because now I can see it yeah and cue differently and say yeah. things that might you know click with people yeah think of it like um you know, when you get a flat tire and you use the jack to jack up your car, you're using the jack as a lever to lift the car up so you can loosen the lugs and take the wheel off. You wouldn't be able to take the wheel off unless you lifted the car. You couldn't lift the car as a human unless you had a tool. The tool is the lever. So as mm -hmm. a yoga teacher, the levers are that we cue to are the muscles and the bones as a way to help the student lift the car, change the position of the body in some way. So what you're saying is you were, the lever you were speaking to was the posterior lever in the tailbone tucking. And now you're saying there's another lever I can access, which is the rectus abdominis, which connects to the same part of the body, just on the anterior side. So instead of leveraging the posterior lever, I'm gonna leverage the anterior one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, that's really helpful. And maybe sometimes you're going to say tuck the tail and they're good with that. Which is why the other beautiful piece of this is you have options. You have options not being locked in. So now you're looking at your class, you're saying something, you're seeing how it lands, you're tweaking it. You're not tweaking it the same way all the time. You're tweaking it in ways that is customized to what you're seeing. And that's how you build connection. And that's how students feel seen. And that's how cues land on them in a way where they're like, oh my God, my back pain. I'm not saying it's going to go away, but this is like the first time I've ever felt like upright without having that nagging pain in my back or whatever their experience might be. Um, so absolutely 100%, very different way of teaching and, and very powerful for, for not just you, but for the people that hear your cues.
So what else? What other examples? Anything else? I think that's all that comes to mind for me right now. Those were really like the big yeah. things that I noticed in this. I had forgotten about that that one about the swayback kind of thing, yeah. but those were my my things that stood out yeah. at this point. Uh, when you're teaching, just as soon as you can from when you're done with teaching, just jot stuff down. And when we get together, we'll just knock off these examples. Because honestly, this is like the real nuts and bolts value of these calls. That's why, like I say to people, like go through the course, don't fret about it. We're going to get together. We're going to, you know, bring stuff to life from the course. And you're going to bring as many as you can real life examples because we can always back into the anatomy content from the real life examples. And that's a great way to do it on these calls. And then when you go through the course, you're like, oh, yeah, we talked about that. Oh, yeah. Now I now I don't just get it in the A to Z. Now I get it in the real life way. And I can also go backwards and just get it in the studying way. Right. So just keep jotting down examples, any questions that you have in your teaching. And if you don't want to wait until the next call, just send me an email like, hey, Karen, I was teaching today and I saw somebody was doing blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm trying to figure out what could possibly be the reason for that or how could I adjust my queuing? So just just send me those emails. OK, yeah, that's helpful. And I'm about a year, just over a year into teaching. Sorry. OK. I'm about a year into teaching right now. So it's like, I've seen some of this stuff. I feel like I've, it's a good time for me to start to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. And don't ever worry about how many modules you're doing and all that. You're going to do this in the time that you give to it. You know, the calls are really the meat and potatoes and where a lot of the magic happens. The course you'll always have access to and, you know, that's, there's never any pressure to, to finish it in any particular time frame. So, okay, great. So anything else you want to cover before we wrap up so that you feel like, yeah, we covered the things? No, I don't think so. I think I'm just rolling through and that's working fine. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Before you go, I want to let you know about a new mini course I just created as of October 2021. It's called the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program mini course. It's essentially an introductory version to my signature program that teaches you anatomy so that you grow your confidence in sharing cues and sequences and in all those conversations you have with your students. If you're like some of the yoga teachers I speak to, you might feel as if you don't have the time to do my full program. That's one of the main reasons I created this mini course, which will give you all the same steps in my signature blueprint approach to teaching you anatomy and will allow you to complete it in much less time. There are 10 modules each of about 10 minutes each, and the entire program walks you through mini lessons from the larger program. You'll leave with specific new skills that you can start to use right away. You may also leave with a keen interest in enrolling in the larger program because your curiosity and confidence have been stoked. For you, the podcast listener, 
I'm offering $5 off the purchase price of the mini program, which is just priced at $27, so the cost will go down to $22 for you. Once you complete the mini course, you'll see in the next step section how to get a $50 credit to put towards the larger program should you decide to invest in that in the future. To purchase the mini program, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com, click the link for online courses, and select the mini course link. When you check out before you enter your credit card, enter the code podcast and you will receive the $5 off. I hope you enjoy the program. I hope it stokes your curiosity and builds your confidence. Namaste.